great Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 231, and there's only one player who can get that number, and of course it is Heather O'Reilly, who finished her international career with 231 caps, placing her eighth all-time on the U.S. Women's National Team list. Heather earned her first cap at age 17 in 2002 at the Algarve Cup and played her final international game in September 2016 versus Thailand. And of course, she's still playing pro soccer with the courage in NWSL. So two chats today. First, I talked with Susie Rance of Sounder at Heart to hear all the details about the Reigns move to Tacoma, the new minority investors, the New Jersey sponsors, and of course, Vlatko Ninovsky's recent player moves. Then I cut up with Laura Armstrong, the Toronto Star, to talk about Canada's Women's World Cup preparations and the various paths Canadian players are taking in the pro game. And yeah, we had to talk about how Christine Sinclair is getting really close to matching Abby Wambach's record. And of course, if you haven't noticed, the Mix Zone is now on the Beautiful Game Network. I'm so psyched to be part of this network of podcasts, and BGN also has a site dedicated to American soccer coverage. So to be sure, to, so be sure to check out www.bgn.fm and note they are actively looking for contributors to add women's soccer content. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper, here with Susie Rance from Sounder at Heart. Susie, all the way up in Seattle, where I can't believe that you're telling me you've had snow this week. But hey. That's just going to, this will be the cold podcast because my other segment is with uh, Laura Armstrong from the Toronto Star and they just had to deal with the polar vortex. Okay, then I have no complaints because (laughs) we haven't dealt with anything that severe. We had one day of snow and it was actually quite lovely. We don't get that very often here. Well, and and I like that phrase quite lovely because that's, that kind of sums up my reaction to the big news uh, from Seattle last week that Boom, moving to a new venue uh, a year earlier than I think most of us anticipated, a venue with grass, uh, a, like a perfect size venue, a venue with other uh, another soccer team, which, you know, Seattle Centers 2, which will be rebranded as Tacoma Defiance, uh, a venue where you can have TV. I'm just a, a new minor, minority investor. So, so much of this, I know I'm just kind of babbling all out there, but I was really excited to see that that Seattle news. Tell me what it's like for you as someone who's been covering the team for so long, just you know your reaction and, and some of the local fan reaction. Yeah, I'll just start with just my overall reaction, which is I think this is so huge for the long-term sustainability and growth of the team. Um, one, one of the new investors that you referenced, someone, one of the mi- minority owners is Adrian Hanauer, who owns, who's the majority owner of the Seattle Sounders. His mom is a huge Seattle Rain and women's soccer fan. And he's, oh, that's been, so awesome. It is cool. And he's been itching for a long time to, to really, he even said based on today's political climate with women, he's just been trying to find a way to really get involved in a meaningful way. Um, but one of his concerns, which is a rightful concern, is the stadium situation. And he didn't feel like Memorial was a long-term solution. He didn't really want to invest if there wasn't a long-term commitment. And when this news came forward, it was like all on board. So just like thinking about what new owners can bring to the table alongside Bill and Teresa Predmore, 
um, and just like the opportunity to build um, a real um, long-term uh, plan around a stadium, I think is just going to be really, really fantastic for the team. Um, from a fan's perspective, um, you everyone probably saw um, that Bill and Teresa Predmore wrote an incredibly open, transparent, thoughtful yes. letter to fans that really outlined why they had to make this change now, um, how much thought had gone into this decision. Um, and fans really get that. And I thought that was really smart of them because uh, it, it did feel incredibly sudden to a lot of people. Um, and fans are excited for the reasons I already outlined around long-term growth, but also like Memorial had this like really special place in a lot of people's hearts. We had so many memories there. There's a huge group of people who maybe live north of Seattle who are a little like skeptic and um, nervous about the move since it means they won't be able to commit as much as they, they used to be able to in terms of attendance, but all universally feeling um, like they understand why this decision was made. Yeah. And, and as Sudden as the announcement felt, we did know, you know, at least the last few years that they couldn't stay at Memorial Stadium forever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because of the school district wanting wanting to renovate. And as much as I always enjoyed that location visiting where it's like, hey, the Space Needle's right there and I can get there on the monorail and it's in such a great neighborhood. Um, you know, you knew that it, it, it's like long term. It, it was missing a lot aside from, mm -hmm. you know, that they were playing on turf. Like I always dreaded that, that long walk up to the, the press box. And I don't know how <laughs> you and Jacob and the others have done it all these, all these years, you know? Um, so it's, it's, to me, it feels like another step in that natural evolution of, Hey, if a league is going to be long-term, you know, you have to start looking as what's good for the long-term, not the, Hey, at least we found somewhere to play. So this is, you know, that next step of, you know, long-term vision from the Predmores, getting other investors involved, which I, I think just speaks volume, not only that it's another investor, but it's an investor like the Hanauers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's little things that are going to really um, take it, like really help the team, even if they have a small dip in attendance, which I'm not really predicting. It's hard to say for sure, but the fact that they can sell, more food and beverage options, including beer. Um, the fact, which I don't know how many times people have complained about Memorial and beer, it pairs really well with soccer. Um, and just having that like overall match day experience that a lot of um, people ex like expect when they come to a soccer game. Um, yeah. and, and also the Tacoma, the Cheney Stadium where they're going to be playing has a team store that's open Monday through Friday that's already got rain gear in there immediately after the announcement. And just oh, like having wow. a space, they never had that anywhere in Seattle. Like, there's nowhere you could physically go to get rain gear. Um, so that's just kind of like another new um, merchandise option for them. Those little things I think are going to add up a lot. That's huge. Yeah. Um, and everybody knows I'm a merch freak, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's huge. I mean, I, I thought about the, the first time I, I went to Memorial Stadium, which I think would be, yeah, summer 2014. Um, and not maybe just like 200 yards away is a great Seattle touristy shop. And it had, merch for all Seattle teams except the rain mm -hmm. and, and of course and I knew I, I didn't 
that didn't surprise me, you know, knowing how things work, but it's just like, ah, you know, so that is so great to hear, you know, and I, I like too, that they're going into a venue with other teams that are, I don't know if the right phrase is equivalent size where it's, it's like, I, I never want to diminish the value of NWSL by saying, Oh, they're equivalent to men's second division, but the equivalency I'm making is in terms of where they are in a very saturated sports market mm-hmm. of in terms of attendance and a greater need for grassroots marketing and not having the marketing dollars to do major campaigns. And so being with a minor league baseball team and a USL soccer team, like I, I think that bodes well for a lot of potential partnerships. Yeah, I mean, we saw some of that in North Carolina, right? And there was a lot yeah. of, I mean, their attendance was was pretty strong for a non-MLS um, connected side. And there was kind of some cool um, joint marketing things that they did. And so it'll be really exciting and interesting to see what the Rain are able to do this year from that perspective. Yeah, and I I love too that you've got the the joint jersey sponsor, so Zulily mm-hmm. doing doing rain and sounders. I mean, what has the reaction to that been? Um, from a rain fan perspective, really exciting, and that was actually another um, connection that was really made because of Bill Predmore's relationship with Adrian Hanauer. It was really Zulily was in initial conversations with the Sounders, and it was really Adrian who said, "Hey, you should really be talking to our partners over at the Rain." Um, that made that connection. And thank goodness they built that relationship over the years. I think people know that, I mean, they have not been forthcoming with the dollar amount, which most sponsors aren't, but it was a significant one. And um, that would just what that money allows the rain to be able to do in terms of creating a really professional environment for their players, thinking about long-term sustainability um, to have like a, an ambitious, um, growing startup organization want to be such an important partner and and not just like have their name attached to it, but they want to do a lot more ongoing stuff with the rain and the sounders um, has been really exciting to see. You know, um, be interesting to see what exactly Zilli is going is putting in that's just beyond the name on the jerseys this year. Yeah, yeah, and then we've had of course some, you know. Player news I mean, today: Elizabeth Addo being mm-hmm. being waived, which isn't a surprise, seeing how many internationals <laughs> are, are on the Seattle roster. I mean, thankfully you have some that with either American parents or a green card, but mm-hmm. the ones not, considering that you had also signed uh, Elise Kellen Knight and Celia Jimenez Delgado in the off season. It's like, oh, you have all these new internationals, so you know something's got to give. So talk about one, those two signings. I mean, Celia was a, a draft pick for 2018 um, and and has played with Spain. You know, mm-hmm. Lise Kellen Knight, you know, big name for, for Australia. So talk about what, what you think they bring to the table. Sure. I think I know Celia um, was someone that Vladko in particular was super excited to get us uh, far down in the draft as they did last year. And I think – a lot of teams were worried about international spots uh, and maybe didn't pick her up as soon as she, I think some expected her to be because she's a really talented technical player, as you said, who's gotten quite a bit of looks with Spain, a team that has a shot to, to do some good things in the World Cup this year. 
she actually elected to stay through graduation and didn't really join the team in any capacity until June last year. And so was one of the big reasons why I think she wasn't integrated as, as quickly and signed officially last season, but got to play with the Sounders women, the um, WPSL team here and get that opportunity, which they actually won the national championship. So she was able to win that. So I don't think it was any surprise um, that she was brought into the fold this year and, and will bring um, just a lot of extra strong, strong depth to this team. Um, Elise Kalanai is joining a really um, already quite stacked midfield um, in Rumi Utsuzi, Ali Long, Jess Fishlock, Morgan Andrews. Um, so it'll be interesting to see when all of them are here at the start of the season, how they all fit together. But knowing that a lot of those players may be departing for the World Cup, I think players like Morgan Andrews, um, players like Kristen McNabb, who can play more of a defensive midfielder, will have to be called on a lot um, to step up and fill those shoes. But um, she just uh, such a uh, another talented um, midfielder that slides into an already very talented midfield. And then, of course, the big trade, uh, Shea Groom being reunited with with former coach Vladko Andonovsky, so joining Seattle. And Seattle sending Naho Kawasumi to to Sky Blue, which really surprised me when I first heard that, because to me Naho has you know Naho equals Seattle. Hmm. Yeah, I think not. I mean, I think everyone would agree with that, including owners Bill and Teresa. For folks who maybe aren't as plugged in, um, their son Henry, in particular, just adores Naho, and they have formed a really, really strong bond since she joined the team back in 2014. Um, so I can say with utmost certainty that if anyone was sad to lose her, it would be the owners of the team more than anybody else, just because of her commitment to the team, but also what she brought personally to their family. Um, and I know from speaking with them and what they've shared actually on a podcast interview we, we did with them, a lot of this decision was driven by Naho, and that's really important, I think, to emphasize. She knows that she has a real chance of making a World Cup roster, and she also knows that just based on like the makeup on the team and the way that Vlaka wanted to play this year, she wasn't going to get as many minutes as perhaps she wanted to. Um, but she also really wanted to stay in the league because she knew how competitive the NWSL is and what, what that would mean for her in terms of her chances on um, to, to make the squad with Japan. So she was open to a trade with any team. And along the way, as they were having discussions with Sky Blue, who expressed interest, um, the rain owners were like giving Naho every opportunity to make this decision herself. And she's really excited about the chance. Um, Denise Reddy sort of is, trying to play a kind of technical style with Sky Blue. So they, um, she thought she actually would have a real opportunity to shine there, and we'll see. Um, it's really sad for everybody to see Naho go, but um, it feels a lot better, I think, for many people knowing how much thought went into it in terms of supporting her. Well, and of course, normally at this point, I would say, well, hey, Susie, tell me about what you think of, of Vladko's draft picks this year. Um, <laughs> but he didn't have any. Uh, and I know I've mentioned this on my draft recap already that I just, you know, talking with Flacco in Chicago, you know, the night before the draft and that just, he, he was trying so hard to get picks. And we even showed him on the draft broadcast, like walking around 
and then just like leaving the room and you know it's like but it was just like you can't have a draft without Vladko and Anoski getting some picks I know he I think he I mean one the rain actually don't have many spots this year the the um the great and smart thing that they really tried to do was build their team last year to set them up to be really successful this year in a world cup year. So they got a lot of depth through the Boston dispersal draft um, that they were hoping would, they would be able to keep those players um, into this year and they were able to, so they didn't have many spots to fill for this year, but I think he was really looking at like, are there, you know, one or two players that maybe aren't, um, we don't need for this year, but it might be great long-term pickups for the rain. And he wasn't able to make any deals. He was quite, I think, quite um, frustrated running around trying to get people to to give him some draft picks, but didn't have any luck. <laughs> and and it's funny when you think about that. You know, the general attitude is after maybe the first fifteen or so picks that you don't think you're going to get a lot of value out of the picks, but coming into this year where, you know, we know all the teams have to think about what happens when my internationals are gone, Mm -hmm. the women's world cup, you've got supplemental spots, you've got slightly bigger rosters, you know, it's, it's, I I, I love that it it was changing things up and so that you couldn't go in and with the assumptions like, well, I was always able to do this before. It's like, who knows? We're kind of back to a 2015 situation, but, but better. Mm-hmm. You know, that more yeah. people, more people have an opportunity to get playing time to be seen and, and, you know, make something from it. Yeah. So any last, you know, Seattle thoughts or, or things you want to share um, that, that maybe, you know, national listeners haven't, haven't heard about Seattle? Oh, good question. Um <laughs> I well, I guess the one thing that um, I, from observing the team last year, really felt like maybe the rain was lacking in terms of being able to get across um, and and win that semifinal game and make it to the final last year was just a little bit of like extra grit and physicality. Um, I don't think you know that that match against Portland was that first half was insanely exciting. Um, and action-packed, but in the second half, it got a little physical, it got a little more direct, and the rain just didn't have a way to respond to that. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I I feel like bringing in um, Shea Groom, bringing in Darian Jenkins as well, who we, I guess we didn't talk about, who hasn't had a chance to really prove herself, but got drafted by North Carolina and was behind some really, really talented players. Um, but they, I think they might have a little bit of that, a little extra of that this year. Um, and it will be really interesting to see um, a team that last year had so many new players and was able to come together and even make the playoffs was impressive. And now they have a lot of those people returning. Um, so it'll be it'll be exciting to see if they can kind of adapt to playing against teams that are a little bit more direct this year and what they can accomplish. And I think it's it's always great to have that second year where, okay, it was a transitional year in some ways because you had Vladko coming in, even though a lot of the roster, you know, was the same, but he's been adding and adding and reshaping the team. And so now you've got that, that momentum of, of the second year, you know, under Vladko and, and having gotten back into the playoffs. So, yeah, I mean, 
Seattle's going to be nothing if not a contender. Yeah, know, and I think what was season. so impressive last year was the rain in 2017 gave up so many goals. They weren't they almost made the playoffs because they also scored a lot of goals, but they gave up a lot of goals. And then in 2018, um, the only returning person on that back line was Lauren Barnes. They had a whole new back line otherwise and were able to almost set a record for the fewest goals given up, although North Carolina ended up passing them at the end. Um, so just like to be able to flip that switch in just a year's period with only one returning player was impressive. And that same back, yeah. back coming back this year. So exciting. Yeah. And, and to see Lydia Williams kind of reclaim a starting position, you know, we know she was really oh, yeah. frustrated at, at Houston in 2017 and, you know, got that, that, um, you know, late trade. And I mean, she had, I thought an incredible season this past season. She I was, she was, was my vote. She was my vote for goalkeeper of the year. I mean, she was my MVP of the the team overall too. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, I mean, Adriana French was incredible too um, and definitely deserved those accolades, but I thought Lydia Williams just made a huge case for herself last year. Yeah. Well, Susie, thank you so much for, for taking the time to share all your Seattle insights and, and news and notes. I'm definitely looking forward to, to making the trip out there so I can see this new stadium and not have to walk 120 steps up to a very old press box. It was so nice to chat with you. Excited to see you in Tacoma this year. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Laura Armstrong from the Toronto Star. Uh, I'm thinking it's not very warm up there right now, is it, Laura? We survived the (laughs) Good. Like, are hovering around freezing, which we'll take. We will take. (laughs) Yeah. It's not like, it's not really, it's it's a very small silver lining, but it's a silver lining. And and hey, at least you didn't have a Toronto FC outdoor game to cover during the polar vortex. Oh, thank God, right? (laughs) Soccer should not be, I, nobody rejoiced about the changes to the MLS playoff structure, like, people who covered Toronto playing in two cup finals back-to-back years in December, December 9th and 10th. Soccer's not a winter sport. Sorry. Yeah. 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 It's not. Well, speaking of soccer, of course, in Canada, uh, we got to talk, we got to talk about, about the women leading up to, you know, we've got the women's world cup this summer and, and Canada started off the year. They, they had a camp in Spain, beat Norway yep. 1-0 and of course goal by Christine Sinclair and she is slowly creeping up the ladder towards Abby Wambach's international uh you know goal record so yeah I I'm I think about this like how cool would it be for Christine to break that record during the World Cup and at the same time like okay just I know for Canadian fans just breaking the record will be exciting enough and we all know that the way Christine plays where it's, it's, it's so, I don't want to use the cliche of unselfish so much, so much Mm -hmm. as more, more the team player of just, just like, she's not the person that they always stick up front to, to be the finisher. She plays a lot of different roles on the team. So she's not always in a scoring position, you know? Um, So I don't want to burden her with that either, but, 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 but what do you think? I don't think she's 
burdened by it. I think she's very aware that like it it's coming up. And I, I don't think that like I think she just she operates with like sort of a quiet confidence and those around her operate with a quiet confidence that like she knows she's gonna break it. You know, I think it's what, ten yeah. goals or something like that now? Like that's it's that's like a year seven. For it's seven? Yeah. yeah, that's a year for Christine yeah. Claire. They they go and play against um you know oh god, I'm blanking on their um pre like they're all, they go play against Oligarch Cup. They're going to yeah. have a couple of teams that you know are, aren't going to be yeah, Scotland, as, you know, Iceland, and yeah, yeah, exactly. And and she begged two goals each game. Then you, there's no reason that she couldn't do it um, at the FIFA Women's World Cup or or be very very close. And I do think that would be a great story for her. I I genuinely think she could have already done it. Like that's just how unselfish she is. And sometimes I find myself screaming at the TV because I know that this is like not something that she really I think she would like to get it off her back I think she would like to break the record so then we can just talk about what record she's going to step for herself and then there's no competition there's no real pressure to to get it done and sometimes I Uh find myself screaming at the tv being like why are you passing to Janine Becky like score you know like Janine (laughs) Becky has years to break Christine Sinclair's record from now on so I'm just like so confused like her she's really dropped back over the last couple of years I think for a long time she was put on the field to be like that that player who scores goals and now she's become much more of a facilitator and it's fantastic and it's so good for the development of the program um, with you know the likes of Janine Becky the likes of Nichelle Prince and Adriana Leone and all of those players playing off of her that they get to play with a a player like Christine Sinclair and sort of sink their teeth and have her set them up so that they know that they can score goals at this sort of national level um, and it, it really does go to show exactly how she feels about um, this team, I think. And, and it's a testament to the fact that she is sort of the ultimate team player. But I, I would be shocked if it wasn't um, – if she didn't pass Abby's record by um, the end of the year at least. And what I think is very impressive about how she's done it is the fact that, you know, Norway's a decent team. And she's scoring goals against Norway. She's scoring goals against some some decent teams. And I kind of thought that maybe Canada Soccer, just to, like, make sure that Christine Sinclair gets this record, they'd, like, throw in, like, a couple of games against, like, you know, the number, like, 110th team in the world. Here's a friendly right. goal right. for five goals, you know? And they haven't done that. She's, you know, she's scoring these, go- these goals in legitimate competitions. And you look at the, the teams that they played against in – um, CONCACAF and obviously they, they lost the U.S. but they did have some tough games um, over the course of that that tournament and, and she scored some decent goals. She set up some decent goals so I think that it's just been impressive the way that she's gone about it. She's not lowering her standards. She's going to score goals against decent teams and that's the way that she's going to set this new record I expect and um, I think that is just a testament to her, her abilities still even though she's you know sort of mid-30s although I don't think she likes when you suggest that to her (laughs) well we 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 know that that you know top level competitive athletes they don't they don't put labels on it the way we're like oh you're this age so you know you're probably yeah and in your career soon and she will turn 36 right before the women's world cup starts but you know, she she hasn't had a lot of injuries over her career she seems really fit I, you know, I haven't seen her really slowing down. I mean, she played 
I think she played every minute of the NWSL regular season, you know, for the Thorns. So I don't, I don't see this as necessarily the end for her. I totally agree with you. The end for her either. I really think that, you know, when Christine Sinclair says that maybe this is the end or maybe it's not, you just like let her do whatever she wants. And I think that the, the can of soccer is going to absolutely do the same thing um, because, she she is she is Canada soccer to a point. Um, she's the person who has brought this team as far along as it has come. She's the heart of this this organization, um, both on the men's and women's side, I would argue. And I think that you know if Christine Sinclair wants to play four years from now at the the next Women's World Cup, they're going to let her because you just let Christine Sinclair do whatever she wants. Um, <laughs> that's that's genuinely my opinion, and I think that yeah. you know she. She, like Abby Wambach, is just a, a great leader, um, and she's a great impact player, and maybe you transition her going into the next World Cup into more of a, a substitute role. Maybe you bring her in as an impact player and have her play the last 30 minutes of a game. Or maybe she's fit enough to play from the beginning. Yeah. I don't know. I think that, like, you can't underestimate the presence of having Christine Sinclair, and even if you were fielding a young team four years from now, and they knew that they had Christine Sinclair on the bench who could give you 30 or 45 minutes, why wouldn't you want that? Right. Right. Yeah. No no reason I mean, to, to jettison a player that brings – yeah. No reason to jettison yeah. a player that brings so much to the table, especially when, you know, you think about, uh, you know, the veteran aspect of how that can benefit young players, especially someone who yeah. it's their first Women's World Cup and could have the jitters, you know, it's just like – you know, someone that sets the tone in training, um, you know, all all of that. So yeah, definitely looking forward to seeing how, how this year unfolds for, for Sinclair. And, you know, we heard today uh, that Canada soccer announced that Canada will play England in early April in Manchester. Um, And what kind of got me thinking when I saw that announcement was when is Canada going to play at home again? Yeah. So, I think that, like, if they're going to play at home, they'll play at home in May. The way mm-hmm. that they did it, the last Women's World Cup, they played against France in April, and then they had a game just outside of Toronto um, mm-hmm. at the end of May. Obviously, that's a little bit different because they didn't have to then travel to France. Right. Um, you would hope that Canada Soccer would be putting a game on home soil before the World Cup kicks off. Um, there's been, like, you know, no – specific yes or no as far as I know um, whether or not they've sort of guaranteed that they're going to play a game on home soil Um, but I think that in terms of timeline there is space there to have a game in May um, right before the World Cup kicks off like three weeks probably before that and you'd you'd want that I think from a, a, a country perspective in the sense that a you know real big fans want to see this team play before they go off and and do what they're going to do in France and you want to sort of get the hype up and you want you want to have um you know attention drawn to the fact that they're playing now and three weeks later they're going to be competing for another world cup so I think that's really the only timeline that makes sense um so if they are able to get that game in May then perhaps they'll play it on home soil um, but other than that, I don't see a window where they would with all Garf Cup in, in March and then, you know, um, Manchester now in early April. So 
I think it would be very disappointing to Canadian fans um, not to have the team play on home soil before, but I don't necessarily know that that is going to be guaranteed in any shape or form. And I think I remember speaking with Kenneth Heiner-Muller and him saying that they had hoped to go for a couple of weeks before um, before the tournament and perhaps play in England um, or somewhere over in Europe um, mm-hmm. to prepare for the, for the World Cup and sort of get used to being on, on, on that time frame, which then would make a game in May, I think, very difficult. Um, yeah. So yeah. we'll see. I definitely think that that was the first sort of question on a lot of fans' minds this morning when they woke up to the news that Canada would be playing in Manchester um, was, is there going to be time for a Canadian game? And I don't, I genuinely don't know if there is. And I, and I totally understand the playing on European soil leading up to this tournament as much as, as possible. So you've got the Algarve, you've got this friendly uh, against England, but, you know, we've seen the, you know, you know the common practice uh, on Canada's side of really not hosting many games. And, and and I feel like it's a shame because when they do host at home, the crowd's usually great. You know, that's, that's exposure, that's revenue. That's, you know, there's, there's a lot around that. So I, you know, I, I just wish, you know, we saw, we saw more, you know, proactive scheduling on the part of Canada soccer. But yeah, and I do think that it's important to the team. I think that when you look back at the 2012 Olympics and, and you look at the way that the country really rallied about, around this group, there's enough mm-hmm. players in this group from that, that 2012 team and from the 2015 World Cup that a lot of people got to know that I think that once fans, sort of more casual fans, see the players' faces, they'll remember, oh, hey, Christine Sinclair, you know, played amazing in that that game against the U.S. Oh, hey, Diana Matheson scored that goal. Oh, hey, you know, Ashley Lawrence and and Kadisha Buchanan really made their debuts and and cemented themselves as, like, future stars at the Women's World Cup in 2015. I think that the the faces are recognizable enough, but I think that there needs to be, like, a sort of a little bit of a push there. Um, And I think that the team really... Um, really is really galvanized by the fact that they know that they have supporters. I know in London 2012, they were kind of in a little bubble after, um, during like the whole tournament. And then when they lost to the U.S., there was sort of a a break in that bubble. And and John Herdman made it very apparent to the girls, like how, to the ladies, I should say, how much support they had back home and how much the country had really like gotten behind the team after all of the passion and, and ultimately heartbreak that they showed right. um, in that in that game, and and they they had never experienced something like that before. Women's soccer, I think, you take for granted that um, they're going to have people there watching, and and they they don't they they didn't right like they they assumed that nobody was going to be there, nobody was paying attention, and then suddenly they come back from England and and people are on the tarmac waiting for them and celebrating them. Um, and I think that carried on to 2015, and you want that to carry on, or at least that feeling to carry on in 2019. Um, and so that's definitely what you want for them. And the only other thing that I would say, too, is that we're really in the process here in Canada of, of promoting the Men's World Cup in 2026. And obviously, you know, in Canada, the very least, the, the men's team is very much sort of less of a topic of conversation, has been less of a topic of conversation over the past decade or even longer, especially since the women have had success. 
and they're not so recognizable. So Canada soccer is really trying to push the men's game and getting to know the men's team. And I think that you just, you don't want to forget in that process, the women and the fact that the women are, you know, the people who have really kept Canada soccer in the news and in, in the sort of public eye for the past decade. And, And it would be doing them a disservice if you didn't, you know, make sure that they were celebrated in the way that they should be. No, I think that's an excellent point. And it, it reminds me of one of the things I heard that Carlos Codero, the president of U.S. soccer said, which which made me really respect him, where he's like, as we're working on this 2026 bid, why are we not bidding for 2027 at the same time? Yeah. You know, like, like let's, let's not be so blinded by this one thing uh, that we don't, you know, take advantage of, of everything that, you know, everything that we have to offer. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, you know, of course, Canadians, we've got these national teamers that we've seen in the NWSL, some of them since the very beginning. I mean, what I loved about NWSL launching in 2013, following that amazing Olympic tournament for Canada, is mm-hmm. you had the Canadian subsidized players s- s- at a celebrity level that we hadn't really seen in the past, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it wasn't just Christine Sinclair, but it was also Sophie Schmidt and Desiree Scott and Di- Diana Madison yeah. and Aaron McLeod. You know, it's like, um, and so we've seen kind of an ebb and flow of, of Canadians in, in NWSL. Cause you know, we, we saw a couple, a couple years ago, Ashley Lawrence and Kadisha Buchanan decide to not declare for the NWSL draft, go, go straight over to, to the French league, you know, and now we're seeing some players who've been in the league for a while. We're hearing that they might be leaving. Like there's been no official announcement, but I keep hearing from multiple sources and people have said it publicly that, you know, Sabrina D'Angelo is not, uh, you know, returning to NWSL this year. So mm-hmm. the rumor is like, Hey, well, will Stephanie LeBay take her place? Who knows with with the situation at Sky Blue if Kaylin Sheridan will remain with that club? I've I've heard nothing on that. Of course, we saw yeah. Janine Becky leave midseason last year to go play in the FAWSL. We know Adriana Leon has moved on. We're hearing Rebecca Quinn is going. So, you know, what have you heard related to Canadians and who's staying, who's going? You know, what works best for them? Because I, I do. I do feel that a lot of fans assume that Canadian subsidized players are the same as American subsidized players, and they are not pulling the same salary that the U S women's national team players are. So for some of those, for, for most of those players, if they can get a contract in Europe, it can be a much better deal than what they can get in NWSL because not because of NWSL salary limits, but because of how they're paid by the Canadian Federation. Yeah, I, I think that um, most of the Canadian players that I've spoken to, some who play, not so much, you know, Christine Sinclair, Diana Matheson, Desiree Scott, like those sort of tried and true NWSL players, I think that they're they're the kind of players that are going to be NWSL players sort of for life. Um, but I think that this next generation of um, young players has sort of been guided by those decisions by Ashley Lawrence and um, Kadisha Buchanan to go to the European game. I think that in some ways decisions that the U.S. women's national team players make to stay in um, in the U.S. or to just go out on loan and then come, <clears throat> excuse me come back for the end of WSL season, I think 
maybe help, help sort of play into those decisions by the Canadian women's national team because they're still big names. So they're a draw over there. Um, mm-hmm. for, for teams like PSG or teams like Olympics, you know, um, so I think that following in the footsteps of Tadisha, of Ashley, are these young, other young players who are seeing, you know, those two not only sign their initial contracts there and, you know, enjoy it and, and have success, but also sort of re-up their contracts, which I think both of them have done over the course of last year. And, and that's sort of showing their teammates that, maybe this is a better avenue for us. And I really think that, like, in terms of the young players that I've spoken to, none of them have ruled out playing in Europe. That is something that they definitely are interested in, and I think that that's something that most of the young players see for themselves at some point in their career. Um, the draw of Champions League is massive um, with the the Canadian women's national team, for sure. That's something that they all sort of want to play in and want to experience. And some of the stories out of NWSL for the young, the the younger sort of contingent, or the maybe not the younger contingent, but less experienced contingent in terms of like Steph LeBay. I know she had you know problems off the field, but she wasn't particularly happy with the way that things went. I don't think with the Washington Spirit, and mm-hmm. decided to, to to completely change her career path and try and play with a men's team just because she didn't want to play in the NWSL. And when those are the headlines coming out of, um. The NWSL, not so much, you know, Christine Sinclair loves Portland or Diana Matheson loves uh, Utah or or those kinds of things. I just think that it, it kind of persuades the younger players to go the Europe route rather than maybe go the NWSL route, which is not to say there haven't been some success stories. You know, Shalina Zadorsky and Michelle Prince and uh, Alicia Chapman, those players are all, you know, playing. Even Kaylin Sheridan, um, she had a great season last year. It's just whether or not they can support her again. So I think right. I think the, this trend here is going to be more towards Europe. I don't think that Canada Soccer has any issue with sending their players to Europe um, if they're able to to make that work for them. And um, I even think that the younger players, like you know, you've talked to um, Jesse Fleming, who's still in university, and she has said that she would like to, you know, someday play in Europe. So I think that they're really learning from their teammates and their teammates have had some real good experiences over there. So they figure like if, if we're going to get compensated better, maybe than we would um, in the NWSL, not just with, um, with playing time and, and, mon- and money, but with sponsorship deals and stuff like that, um, then maybe we'll go over there and give, our hand, give, it, a, give it a try. Yeah, and I want to stress again that it's a different journey for the Canadian players than it is for the U.S. players when they're deciding about NDBSL. One, if you don't have dual citizenship or a green card, you know, and you're not subsidized, well, then you're going to count as an international roster spot. One, if you are subsidized, your salary is determined by Canada soccer, not the team you're playing for, you know, um, and as we're seeing the women's game, I mean, the club game evolve where, you know, you've got, you know, the women's champions league in Europe just gets, you know, better and better. You're seeing more clubs getting broadcast deals and, you know, 
better facilities and, you know, opportunities. Like I, I remember seeing the tweet, I think it was last week of Wales, the women's national team saying for the first time we have names on the back of our jerseys. And, yeah. you know, like we take it for granted in the U S you know, I know Canada can take it for granted now, but not everybody can take that for granted. I mean, there's, there's a cost to that, you know, um, yeah, all, sure. all, all those little things, you know, add up. So, you know, I, I like in a way that players that are looking at going pro have more choices than, well, the only place I can play is, is NWSL. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. I, I would prefer that, that NWSL be the the desired destination for the most of these players, but just the fact that yeah. worldwide we're seeing changes, that's, you know, that's huge. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And then I think about, we're also starting to see, I think it's just the very beginning of the players deciding, and this is North American players deciding, hey, playing NCAA, you know, sure, I'd get a free ride or mostly free ride at a college, but I've got better opportunities and it'll be better for my soccer career if I go straight to pro. So case in point, Jordan Haitema going, all right, I, I could, you know, play at North Carolina or Stanford or UCLA, but I'm heading to France. Yeah, for sure. I think that this can, I hope that, let me rephrase that. I hope that this can only be good for women's soccer. I hope that the NWSL sees the competition worldwide and um, recognizes that it sort of has to up its game more to be the desired league because I think that you know where maybe five years ago there was a a big sort of space between the NWSL and other leagues I think that that's that that gap is closing pretty quickly um and I also think that I hope that it is something that you know other countries like Canada like I would love to see maybe not necessarily a Canadian league on its own. I would love to see a Canadian women's league on on its own. I don't know that that's sustainable. So maybe some Canadian franchises in NWSL or however that that best works. But I would love to see other countries um, really sort of jumping on this women's soccer bandwagon and thinking, oh, well, you know, we're watching France do it. We're watching Germany do it. England's leagues are really blossoming right now um, and thinking, hey, I can do this too. Um, we can do this too. This is worth our investment. So I think that, you know, the more the better. I do think that there's enough players to sustain multiple leagues around the world. Um, and I do really hope that, you know, this sort of puts pressure on leagues like the NWSL sort of established leagues to continue to evolve with the trends and continue to recognize that women, you know, bring in audiences now and in, in many um markets and and can bring in more audiences and that this is a product that is probably that is absolutely worth selling and in because it's a product that's worth selling you need to make sure that you compensate your players and you know like monetarily but also in terms of training centers and field quality and all of that stuff that has been sort of a problem um, at points across the league's history. Well, and I know that, you know, we hear so much about the, the fight for equal pay and, you know, how historically the, the minimum pay in, in NWSL has been pretty bad. But I but I think what rarely gets talked about, and, and this is true in, in any industry, that 
it's really a mix of pay and those intangibles that will keep people at an organization longer, you know? So when I think about like Seattle rain, they have the most players remaining from the, the original 2013 squad. It's like, right. okay, you know, they, that, that owner made a decision that first year of like, okay, I can only pay them this much, but I can do these other things for them in terms of how I treat them, how we welcome them. What, what else can we offer, you know, per league regulations, you know, and just seeing the league, make an increase not only in in salary but also you know supplemental players and hey here's relocation reimbursements and and all of all of the other things um yeah you know uh, i i think that's and it, it's so hard to gauge those things and you know we don't see that publicly very often but that's the kind of thing i feel like when you have two clubs play each other whose rosters seem to be very equal and one seems mm-hmm. to overperform and one seems to underperform. I think it's those, those intangibles at play, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that we, we do see it in sport overall, right? We see those intangibles in sport overall. When you're talking about um, at the NBA and they're making gobs of money and it's like, Oh, you can make like $44 million or $43 million, but I'm going to go to this team because I know that their facilities are top notch and, and they're, they're going to offer me this, that, and the other. And and they have a legacy of treating their players well. And, And I think generally, you know, teams that have legacies like Portland, like, uh, Seattle, even these, these teams, you know, have a legacy of being known as, as treating their players properly. And that is going to draw other players there if they can get there. Right. So right. I just think, you know, we, we might not see it in, in the NWSL yet. And I think that that is in part because uh, it's just still such a young league, but I do think that you see it in other sports where it is the intangibles that like ultimately make the decision um, for you. I mean, not to step away from the women's team so much quickly, but like you talk about, Sebastian Javinka leaving TSC recently and he's, you know, right. take it with a grain of salt because I don't think that that, you know, was a real ha- happy breakup, but he says he would have taken a pay cut to stay there. And and there is a certain emotional attachment that players have. They're still people. And so you, you want to, as a, I think as a franchise, you want to make sure that you become one of those franchises that has everything that a player could ever want and probably some things that they couldn't even dream of. And that's going to help keep the players in the league and it's going to help grow the game, which I really think at the end of the day should be, you know, the focus for all of these teams and this league as a whole. Well, and, and getting back to the international side of things, so we've been talking club, Mm -hmm. but I want to kind of, you know, wrap it up with, with talking international soccer, looking ahead to the women's world cup. This is the first tournament women's world cup tournament for Canada where they are seeded team not being the host you know that I was so excited to see those final rankings before the draw that Canada was in the top six and wasn't bumped out of that spot because FIFA felt like they wanted to much like in 2015 where Sweden was number six in the world but they gave that spot to Brazil anyway um you know so so what are your thoughts on, on Canada and that group with Cameroon, Netherlands, New Zealand, almost the same group as 2015. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think this is a fascinating 
World Cup for this Canadian team. I think that Canada has proven now um, in the last few years that it is, you know, consistently one of the top five or six teams uh, in the world. And I think that that is an accomplishment in itself. And I think that now the goal is to sort of make the jump and, and be the kind of team that consistently beats the top five teams like the U.S., like France, like England. And you can't say that Canada is that team um, yet. Whether or not this tournament is a jumping off point for them um, or if it's a, a sort of harsh reminder that there's still work to be done um, and, and, and that, you know, closing that gap on the top, top teams in the world, the top three teams, um, being able to, to prove that you're going to beat the best in the world, those like little details that they still need to finalize. Um, so I think it's just going to be really interesting to see how Canada stands up to that pressure. Um, I don't think they're there yet, personally. Um, I know that there will be a lot of talk of whether Canada can sort of beat um, the the best in the world, and I do think that getting out of that group um, with three wins is sort of pretty imperative. Seven points um, would be sort of okay, but I think that they need to make a statement in that group pretty early on. It's not necessarily the easiest group. There are things I think that could go wrong for Canada, um, and when they got out of the gates last year, last time around, they weren't necessarily that quick out of the gates, um, so I definitely think that there's threats in that group. I think Canada has the quality to come out of it with three wins or two wins and a tie, um, but I think that that would be a big statement for them to make that, you know, we're here to play. Um, and from there, it, I think it's going to be a matter of can they find that consistency in the tournament? Have they spent enough time together to, you know, really feel like they know one another and they know what they can get out of um, each other? And, and then it's going to be do they have those little details sort of finesse to beat the best in the world? And I, based on their CONCACAF performance last uh, October, I would probably say no. I still think that you look at that game that they played against the U.S. Um, and and you you kind of feel like the U.S. never really got into, never really was forced to get into first gear. Um, but in these tournaments, you never know. You never know if the U.S. is going to be the last team standing. And, and maybe you just have to beat some sort of teams like England or, or France or, or something that's not necessarily ranked number one in the world. So they just have to be clicking at their best, I think, for this tournament for them to sort of reach the semifinals or reach the finals and, and do put on their best performance ever. Um, so I just think with all of that said, it's going to be a fascinating tournament for Canada to see if they're really one of the big guns in the world. And it, it almost feels a little bit like, um, like the Russia world cup last year where it seemed like, a lot of teams were in it that you wouldn't normally expect to be in it. And when we've got yeah. a couple of favorites, but a lot of the historical favorites are in the middle of transitions, you know, Germany's mm -hmm. not the Germany they used to be, you know, Japan's on the upswing, but still very young that it, um, I, I, it's really hard to read. I mean, I, I started playing with a few brackets and I'm like this, I don't know how this is going to play out, you know? Yeah. Um, which of course make, makes it that much more 
exciting for all of us. Well, Laura, yeah. I really appreciate you spending the time um, to talk, of course, Canada soccer and Christine Sinclair and, and all the great stuff. Um, and I, I like, you know, said it's going to be a fascinating world cup and I really look forward to seeing what happens not only with Canada, but with the Sinclair and the record. Absolutely. We're so close. I feel like it's like, I don't know. I woke up this morning really feeling like it was, it was around the corner and I just can't wait to see what goes on. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. Next up for the U.S. Women's National Team, we have the fourth edition of the She Believes Cup with double headers in Philly, Nashville, and Tampa. The U.S. women will face England, Japan, and finally Brazil. All USA games will air live on a Fox channel. I'm waiting to hear about the non-USA games. They could be streamed or they might just be available elsewhere. Of course, we're looking at Alex Morgan possibly reaching 100 goals. She's sitting on 98 right now, very close to being the seventh U.S. Women's National Team player to reach the 100-goal milestone. And I'm thinking we should get a preliminary roster for the tournament soon, and hey, maybe even a list of the 2019 Federation players for NWSL. Who knows? Speaking of NWSL, the NWSL Players Association announced this week that they will host their first-ever auction to raise funds for their association. The auction will feature limited edition United We Are Stronger resolution bands that have been signed and worn by various players across the league. The auction begins February 8th, and for more info, follow the Players Association on Twitter at NWSL underscore PA. And speaking of Twitter, be sure to follow MixZone and also Keeper Notes on Twitter. Keep in mind, MixZone has two X's, <laughs> and you want to be following at least one of my accounts because uh, I often do giveaways. Uh, you know, if you answer trivia questions right, um, recently I've been giving away uh, mix zone stickers and and other U.S. Women's National Team items. So definitely want to be following mix zone and or keeper notes on Twitter. And last for today, um, I keep talking about this, but I'm excited to keep talking about this. The 2018 postseason edition of the Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac, including color photos, complete player registry, coaching stats, all-time stat leaders, lots more, is available for purchase at keepernotes.com in PDF format. And, more importantly, the first-ever printed edition is now available for pre-order at keepernotes.com. I got the test print back from the printers. I'm making the final tweaks now. So I'm taking pre-orders and if you pre-order it'll be a discounted price. So go ahead, place your pre-order at keepernotes.com. We're talking about a 324 page color almanac. It's really cool. And I am planning to release a complete statistical guide to the Women's World Cup uh, probably mid-late March. So stay tuned on details for that. All right, that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone for sharing this podcast with friends. Thanks to everyone who tweets at me when there's something wrong with the link. I always appreciate that. And, of course, thanks to the Beautiful Game Network for being the new host of the podcast. But I can never forget, thanks to Sean for putting this all together. Thanks. 
But now she's anybody's girl 